The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. Mark chapter 1, I know it's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of Mark. And here we find Jesus at the beginning of His ministry. We have seen as John the Baptist has come and prepared the way for him, baptizing a a baptism of repentance, proclaiming that there would be one who would come after him, and indeed he has come, and he is Jesus, and he was baptized. And there God spoke, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. From there Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And the last time we were together, corporately, we saw Jesus call his first disciples to come and follow him. And now, Mark says that Jesus and his new disciples entered into Capernaum where Jesus taught in a synagogue and has now had an interaction with a demon-possessed man. There is a, a theme to this text this morning. It runs through this text. You see it, and it is that of Jesus' authority. That Jesus' ministry, Jesus' teaching, Jesus' actions are different than any that these people have seen before. And what they understand it as being is a ministry of authority. A man of authority. That's not just seen here in this text, but we will continue to see it throughout the ministry of Jesus. And that is the main theme of this text. But there is a secondary theme of this text. And that is um, the different responses to the authority of Jesus. So we have responses here, both of those in the synagogue who are Jews and that of this demon who has possessed this man. Mark writes in verse 21, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Capernaum was an important city. It was located on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. We know some things about this city. We know from archaeological um, excavations that this was a a very uh, good-sized city in Jesus' day. Most people um, estimate that the population of the city of Capernaum was around 10,000 people. That was a large city in Jesus' day. We know that it was a busy and prosperous port city. We, We talked about now two months ago how the Sea of Galilee served as one of the major fishing sources Um, for all of the Middle East, that fish would would come out of the Sea of Galilee and would travel great distances. And Capernaum was one of the main port cities there on the Sea of Galilee. Um, Archaeological excavation has um, shown that there was a, a, a promenade that was about a half a mile long running along the seawall there in Capernaum. And so it was a busy port city. Um, Lots of commerce happening, a very prosperous city. 
It, was, it is under Roman rule. It's under Roman occupation. It was a tax center for uh, Rome. Uh, we also know that there was a centurion placed here, stationed here, which means that there was a, a large regiment of Roman soldiers in the city of Capernaum. But most importantly... While Capernaum was not Jesus' hometown, Nazareth was, it was Jesus' headquarters for his ministry. Um, This is where Jesus' primary residence was in the city of Capernaum. Matthew In chapter 4, verse 13, records, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. If you keep reading there, that was in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The city of Capernaum was Jesus' main headquarters. It served as his home base of ministry. It also was the home of Andrew and Peter and James and John and Matthew. So this city served an important role in the culture of Jesus' day, but also in the ministry of Jesus. And so naturally, Jesus, walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, calls out to Andrew and Peter and James and John to drop their nets, leave their business behind, and follow him. And they leave their nets, they leave their families, they leave their jobs, they leave their occupations, and they begin to follow him. And Mark tells us that immediately as they leave those nets, as they leave their boats, they follow him into the city. And they follow him on a Sabbath day into the synagogue. Now, a lot of what takes place in Jesus' ministry and throughout the New Testament takes place in or around synagogues. And so it's important to understand their place in the culture there. A synagogue is not the temple for the Jewish people. The Jews had one temple, and that was the temple in Jerusalem. And all of um, the, the Jewish religion centered on the temple, because in the Old Testament you had the 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 tabernacle, the tent, eventually the temple, which was the dwelling place of God. And so all of their life centered on the temple. But 600 years before Jesus' birth, the temple of Solomon in Jerusalem was destroyed. And the Jews were cast out. They were exiled from Jerusalem. And so they traveled out from Jerusalem and settled in these other areas. And so now they're not in Jerusalem and there is not a temple. So the synagogue um, began 600 years before Jesus. All it took to form a synagogue were 10 Jewish men. So if you had a city with at least 10 Jewish men, then you had in that city a synagogue. And if you had a large city like Capernaum, there probably was more than one synagogue. 
And it was these synagogues that served as the center of community life for the Jew. It was their assembly hall. It was their gathering place. It was a place for local worship. It was a meeting place. It was a school. And it was a courtroom. In in a lot of ways, the synagogue for the Jew mirrors the local church for us. And indeed, much of what we take as a local church and was taken as a local church in in, um, the early church comes from this practice of having this centralized meeting and gathering place of a synagogue. In every synagogue, there would be a synagogue ruler. Now, you might think that that's the pastor or the preacher or the teacher, but it was not. The synagogue ruler was more of the organizer or the custodian, the one who was in charge of the daily activities and the daily affairs of the synagogue. They would organize the calendar of what would take place. It would be the synagogue ruler who would be the one that would organize their worship times together. But it was not the synagogue ruler who was the main preacher or the teacher in the synagogue. Instead, you had a couple of things that would happen. One is differing men in the congregations would be the ones who would be the teachers in that synagogue. And... You would have traveling scribes and Pharisees who would travel around and they would come and they would be welcomed into a synagogue to give the teaching. Their worship consisted primarily of a reading from the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so one would stand, read the Torah to the congregation that's assembled there in the synagogue, and then would give an interpretation on the text that they read. So there was always a reading from the Torah and probably always also um, going along with it a reading from the prophets. And so you have men in the congregation who would stand, who would read the scriptures and you would have uh, scribes or Pharisees that would come in and, and do the teaching as well. And on this Sabbath day, Jesus is the one who is chosen to speak. And Mark writes, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The reaction of those who heard Jesus here on this day, their reaction was one of astonishment, of amazement. Literally, the word here is they were thunderstruck. And the weight of the word and the evidence of the New Testament is as they heard Jesus teaching that day, They sat, eyes transfixed, mouths open, in silence, hanging on every word Jesus had to say. 
This was a common reaction to the teaching of Jesus. You see it in Luke 19, verse 47. And Jesus was teaching daily in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people that were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. This is what happens when the king of kings begins to teach. This is what happens when the word of God himself begins to proclaim the word of God they sit transfixed hanging on every word and their realization was that this teaching was different it was different than anything they had heard and it was different from anything they had heard from the scribes they were astonished at his teaching for he taught as one who had authority not as the scribes. The scribes were the experts in the law. They were the professors. They were the teachers. They were the lawyers. Remember, it wasn't common in Jesus' day to be able to read. And so you were dependent on another who was able to read, to stand before you and to read to you the word of God. And then you were dependent on their interpretations. And the scribes were the most honored of all the the teachers. They were the, the most trusted ones. They were the revered ones. It's interesting here, this this play on words. Jesus taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes, because in the Jewish systems, the scribes had authority. They had the authority, their interpretation of the scriptures were binding. So what they said was, was binding, right? And, and boy, did they like binding some stuff up. I mean, this happened here on the Sabbath. Don't think of the Sabbath as a Sunday worship service. The Sabbath was a Saturday for them. And, and it was a day full of rules and regulations. God had said, set aside a day, mark it as holy, consecrate it unto me, and don't work. Well, the Jews had taken that and said, well, we need to make some laws about that. And they had created some 600 different laws of things you could do and could not do on the Sabbath day. And all of these things are coming from the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. They're people who have authority. They're people whose teachings were binding. Yet, these were men who seemed to have godliness. Who were declared godly by others, who were honored, who were revered, who were respected by others, yet consistently, really starting from this day and moving forward, they are the ones who are consistently at odds and against Jesus and his ministry. And this is why they're at odds with Jesus and his ministry, because Jesus is challenging their authority. And there is clearly a difference between this man, Jesus, and these men, the scribes. Church, this serves as a reminder for us. People might think you to be godly. People might honor you. People might revere you. People might trust you. People might hang on your words. But that doesn't make you godly. 
These were men who had all the outward appearance of godliness, yet they lacked it. They lacked it. Just because you have a title, just because you have some authority, does not make you godly. This was the scribes. And as Jesus would teach, the people who were there that day in the synagogue realized that this man was different. That Jesus taught as someone who had real authority. Now, we do not know, it is not recorded to us, what Jesus' message was that day. We don't know. But we do know how Jesus taught. It's recorded for us in other parts of the scriptures. And when Jesus taught, he taught as one who has authority because he has all authority. So how would Jesus teach? We see it in Matthew 5 at the Sermon of the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Right? You have heard it said, but I say to you. Listen, that is a statement of authority. Jesus saying, you have heard it one way, but I'm here to tell you how it really is. That's authority, and it is totally at odds with the way the scribes would teach. The scribes would teach using quotations from other scribes and Pharisees. It was uh, a Evidence of their, of their uh, knowledge, of their education. They would know this scribe said this, and this scribe said this, and this Pharisee said this, and this person said this. Because remember, all those things were considered binding, and so they would stand, and much of their teaching would just be quotation after quotation after quotation. That's not the way Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches the Word of God as the Word of God. You have heard it said, so I say to you. This is real authority. Jesus was not dependent on what others had to say about the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. And his teaching was clear. His teaching was compelling. His teaching was a call to repentance. And in their very midst, his teaching was a revelation of the fulfillment of of God's word and it was happening right before their eyes. And the reality is Jesus could not be ignored. And the congregation sat there in amazement at his teaching as one with authority because he has all authority. He is the word of God. He has all authority. And they understood in part something's different about this man. There's some authority here that the scribes don't have. And Mark says they sat there thunderstruck. Hanging on every word. In silence. Until that silence was broke. And immediately, verse 23, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. There is a demon-possessed man. Now, you might be thinking, what's a demon-possessed man doing at church? Look to your neighbor and ask him. No, I'm just kidding. Um, What's a demon-possessed man doing at church? Listen, this is exactly... This is exactly 
where a demon would be. Because they are the architects of false religion. And the Jewish people had taken what was of God and from God and had twisted it by the purposes of Satan into a false religion. In John 8, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say to you? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. This is exactly where a demon would be. Holding men, women, and children in bondage. Resisting the truth of God. Resisting the word of God. And that's what happens here. This demon-possessed man is in the synagogue. And he is certainly comfortable there until the king of kings shows up. And when Jesus begins to teach, Jesus begins to exercise and to show his authority. And the congregation realizes there's something different about this man from his teaching. But then this authority of Jesus is put on display right before them. And then the man cried out, the demon cried out using the vocal cords of the man. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon is driven by the presence of Jesus to fear. And Mark says that this demon cried out, literally shrieked. Shrieked in fear. Have you come to destroy us? Why is this demon shaken? Why is he stirred to speak? Why is he crying out? Because he knows that King Jesus has come to bring an end to the kingdom of darkness and usher in the kingdom of God. From the very start of his ministry, it was apparent to every demon that they were no match to his unsurpassed sovereign authority. That demon knew that it was the divine power of Jesus that created him. It was the divine power of Jesus that kicked him out of heaven. And it would be the divine power of Jesus that would sentence him to hell. That's the fate of every demon. And that demon knew it. And he knew who Jesus was. And he didn't just think, wow, this seems like a man with authority. He knew this was a man with authority because he had known Jesus in his pre-incarnate glory. And he knew at this moment the kingdom of God is coming and his fate was sure. His doom was sure. And he cried out, Jesus of Nazareth, what have you to do with us? 
He's speaking for every demon. What have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? You better believe he'd come to destroy them. And he would three years later. I know who you are, the demon says. You are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. No dialogue, no discussion, no argument. No struggle. A clear command from the authoritative sovereign king. And that demon had no choice but to obey. I didn't have time in the first service to talk about demon possession and exorcism. But I got a little time now. And here's all I want to say about it. Because you might be wondering. Because I wonder. Scripturally, Jesus had authority over demons and Jesus gave his apostles authority over demons. And when there was an interaction with demon-possessed people, this is how it happened. Jesus simply said the word and the demon obeyed. I want you to notice here that there is no prolonged service. There is no prolonged fight What we see today that masquerades itself as exorcism is not biblical. When Jesus speaks, the demons obey. And they obey right away. Verse 27 is somewhat of an understatement here, and they were all amazed. I mean, you put yourselves in their shoes. They probably had seen Jesus. He probably had been to the synagogue before. He lived there in Capernaum. He certainly had been to the synagogue before. But this time was different. This time he taught, and he taught as one who had authority. And they saw him, and they listened to him, and they heard the difference, and they, in a way, recognized that there is some authority with this man that's not with other people. And then instead of just hearing this authority, they witness his authority displayed as a man in the congregation, overcome with a demon, cries out, shrieks out, breaking the silence. What are you to do with us? Are you here to destroy us? We know who you are. You're the only one of God. And then Jesus, with the word, be quiet, come out of him. The demon obeys and flees. Would you be amazed? That's an understatement. They're amazed. They're amazed. And so they question among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to take it. It probably seemed like a new teaching to them. Why? Because Jesus was probably saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. But it was not a new teaching. It was a fulfillment of the law, not a new law. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. 
So what do we see here? What do we see in this text? We see Jesus's authority on full display. You see the authority of his word as Jesus proclaims as the word of God, the word of God to the people. And you see his authority on full display as he commands even the spirits. Church, what we see in this text is that Jesus is no one to play with. He is not to be trifled with. Jesus is the king of kings and he holds all authority. And what he says goes. So it went for the demon. And so it goes for us. You see his authority. You also see that it is not enough to simply stand in amazement. Church, astonishment at Jesus does not save. Being impressed by the teachings of Jesus does not save. Coming to church and hanging around the word of God and being amazed by it does not save. Even knowing who Jesus is does not save. I want you to notice something here. We're we're at the beginning of Jesus' ministry just in Mark chapter 1 now. And there have been two instances where there has been a confession of exactly who Jesus really is. The first came at Jesus' baptism. Holy Spirit descends as a dove, rests upon him, and God himself speaks and says, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That was the first confession. That was the first proclamation of who Jesus is. The second one doesn't come from James, doesn't come from Peter, doesn't come from Andrew. It doesn't come from John. It doesn't come from those in the synagogue who are godly. It comes from a demon. You are the Holy One of God. Here's what we learned by that. We learned by that that it doesn't take simply knowing who Jesus is to be saved. See, what happened there in that moment is what James talks about in James chapter 2. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. They know who Jesus is. And in their knowledge of Jesus, they know that their doom is sure. It's not just a knowledge of who Jesus is that saves. Listen, don't take my word for it. Listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 7 verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, that's scary. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, Notice what Jesus says here. I never knew you. It wasn't that they didn't know who he was. It was Jesus didn't really know them. Because it's not just a, a knowledge of who Jesus is that saves. So then what is it that saves? 
It's faith and repentance. That's what a demon lacks. A demon's not able to repent. That's what those in these, this synagogue lacked. They stood in amazement at the teaching of Jesus, but they were not struck to the heart to repent of their sins and to trust Jesus as their Savior. That's what saves. Repentance of your sin. Turning from yourself and your sin and trusting, leaning fully on Jesus as your hope. That's what saves. Not just a a realization that Jesus died on the cross, but a deep indwelling knowledge and trust and faith that he did it for your sins. And then you repent of your sins and you trust him. That's what saves. That's what saves. It's abiding in him. It's having union with him. You repent. And you believe. And you repent because you know his authority. And because of his authority... You know what awaits you because of your rebellion. That's what saves. Jesus is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is a man with authority. And his authority stands and it calls you to repent of your sins and to trust him, not to simply stand in amazement. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.